Welcome, church. We're so glad that you're here. If you're watching on video online, welcome as well. Uh, We're in part three of a series called Fatal Failures. And uh, what we're doing is we're taking a look at how some of our setbacks, how some of our failures don't actually preclude uh, the way that we give glory to God. In fact, God uses all of those for his glory and for the good of his world. And so what we're going to do this morning is take a look at our next set of failures is to go way back like way, way back. We're going to go to elementary school, which is awesome. And it go back to that time. For me, I don't remember a whole lot about elementary school. I, I know that I don't remember that much because a little while ago, my daughter asked me how to do a capital cursive letter Q. And I'm like, whoa, I missed that day, like week, all of it. It's all kind of, it's like the classroom stuff. Me as an elementary school kid, like it's, it's very, very blurry. I don't get it. It's like a haze of like baseball cards and Nintendo and like that off-brand Mountain Dew surge, right? We got like a couple fans. I mean, it's just like, I don't remember a whole lot about what happened in the classroom. I'm fully literate, so I, I presume something happens. I learned something along the way. I just don't remember it all that much. But what I do remember is the playground lessons, I do remember learning a lot when the bell rang and we all went out on the playground. What I do remember is like that was a time the learning didn't stop. No, no, it just ramped up because it was on the playground that I learned how to like avoid bullies and avoid becoming a bully. It was on the playground, well, I was supposed to learn how to talk to girls, but I didn't do that because I was working on my Pogs game and that was like more important to me at the time. But it's like the playground lessons where I learned the valuable lesson about how to play Red Rover, Red Rover with your trachea still attached. (laughs) right? It's the important stuff learned on the playground. And so like this morning, I kind of come in, I'm sort of more of an adult now, and I kind of have some perspective. And I want to say that, that the classroom lessons and the playground lessons are both hugely valuable and important in the formation and the instruction of a person, including myself. And especially as it relates this morning, as especially as it relates to, to how God forms us and shapes us spiritually as well. That there's a classroom takeaway on this. When we open up the Word of God and we pray also that it opens up our lives and our hearts. And so we don't just read it. Hopefully you let it read us as well. And so we shape and we form our ideas and our living in accordance with it. That's a classroom kind of lesson. And it's important. It's important when you go into a small group study and you get these little bite-sized, tidbit, easily digestible points of wisdom in your group. That's an important classroom kind of learning. But man, then there's the playground kind of learning. When God just seems to throw you into the deep end and you don't know how you got here, when you're going to get out, or what you're supposed to do while you're here. That's the playground lesson. And so what we're going to do this morning is like take a step back and see in our story is how God uses both of those, the, the classroom learning and the playground learning to shape us as a people today, just like he shaped somebody Moses in the story that we're going to go to. So I want to go there. We're going to go to the book of Exodus chapter 2. There's Bibles under the chairs in front of you, and the words are also going to be on the screen behind me. We're phone friendly, if that works better for you as well. Exodus 2, starting off in verse 11, it says that one day after Moses had grown up, and it's like, wait, hang on. I mean, he didn't just grow up like a little bit. We fast forward. He's growing up all the way. In, in the book of Acts in the New Testament, it says that when this took place, Moses was 40, he was a 40-year-old man when this story takes place, which means that Moses has 40 years 
of professional, the best education, the best classroom Egyptian education you could have. He was raised under Pharaoh. He was raised in the palace. I mean, this guy is the guy that's got like more degrees than a thermometer, right? This guy, Ivy League all the way. And like one of the first takeaways today is just to observe that no matter how much you know, you're never done learning. You're never done growing. And this is like what Moses is going to experience firsthand when he's thrown from the classroom into the playground. What's that look like? Okay, next line. is that he, Moses now, he went out to where his own people were and he watched them at their hard labor. Okay, for Moses, remember, he's got like a foot in both worlds. He's an adopted member of the Egyptian, like Pharaoh's royal family. So he's got like squarely, he's definitely in that Egyptian world, but he's also, remember, he's adopted, so he's also an Israelite. He's a Hebrew. And so these people, they settled kind of east of Egypt, and they just like grew and grew and grew and grew and grew in numbers and in influence until the Egyptians got like nervous and then scared, and then they started acting out of that fear, and so they start to subjugate and oppress them, and so by this time, they're slaves. And so Moses has this identity crisis, like what am I, royalty or a slave? Like, I don't know. And that's a weird, admittedly, that's a weird place for him to be. Now, this is going to feel a little bit like kind of digging down deep into like a Bible study kind of way, but like we're going we're gonna to do some, some application of life, I promise. But I want you to see it and I want you to appreciate so much the efficiency of the words that are used in the story of Exodus. Because so many of these words, they're carefully selected, they're intentional, and they convey a massive amount of depth and a massive amount of meaning. So even just this word, that he went out from the, like, from the palace and to observe how his people, like his, these Israelite people, were being treated. So the name of the book that we're in is Exodus. It's like where we get our word exit from. So this is God's evacuation strategy. This is God taking his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and he's in the wilderness, shaping them, forming them, bringing them into their reward, this promised land flowing with milk and honey. It's a cool story. It's a cool story that not just happened, but it's a cool story that happens because God is like, he's still doing this with us today. He's still pulling us out of our own, away from our hangups, away from our hurts, away from these nasty habits, away from sin, And he's like shaping us and he's forming us and he's pulling us into our reward. It's not just a story that happened. It's a story that is continually happening yet today. And I love the word that's used here is that he went out. There's the the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. There's a Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. The Greek version of the Old Testament of the Septuagint, this word is the word exodus where we get the name of the book from, which is so cool, I think, to think that God's evacuation strategy, God's plan for bringing his people out, his exodus begins with just one. It begins with Moses. Let's see what happens. Continuing on, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own and Moses' own people, Verse 12, I love looking this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Now again, the efficiency of the words that are used here is that when he saw, he didn't just observe callously. No, the word there is that he was deeply moved. 
Literally, he saw with emotion what was happening. He was deeply moved. And so he resolved to do something about it. He attacked the attacker, kills him, hides him in the sand. Now, I don't have a legal background at all, so let's just get that off and out there. Um, But I think a good lawyer could, could, could get him off the hook. You know, this wasn't, a, this wasn't a premeditated crime. This was something done out, this was a, out of an you know, impassioned moment. Also, that word that he saw, Hebrew, or he saw an Egyptian beating, and so he killed, beating and killed there, same word. So the, the implication is that Moses was just doing to that nasty bad guy Egyptian what that Egyptian was doing to the person he was beating up. Like he was going to kill the Hebrew man until Moses intervened. There's a way to spin this story and you don't even have to be that clever, I don't think. There's a way to cast this story and say, Moses isn't a troublemaker or a villain. He's a hero. He's a patriot. Except for one, one problem, of course. He hides the body in the sand. You see, long before Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments literally carved into stone, thou shalt not kill. Long before that, those commandments were were carved into his heart. His conscience convicted him. I should not have killed. And his shame bubbles to the surface here where he, he hides and he buries the man in the sand to cover up and forget what he had done. I'd like for us to jump in to that part of the story because I think for us, that's a lot of where we are. Like, I don't think you've got a, like the body of an Egyptian hiding in the beach somewhere. I don't, like, that's not exactly where we are. But listen, Moses knew, I think, that it was aligned with God's heart to rescue his people, and he was just going to do it one person at a time every 40 years. I mean, it'd take like another 6 million years to get there, but it was, listen, it was a step in the right direction, right? Wrong. See, where a lot of us fall flat is this right here, is that we forget that we have to do God's things God's way. Like first takeaway is doing God's things God's way. It's not enough just to be aligned with God in the final like destination and like however I get there is up to me, right? Wrong. I think that's where all, a lot of us fall down. And if I'm like, if I'm super honest, I think that the, the areas in our life, the, the ways that we force this along more often than not have to do with timing. It's not so much like we're total, totally out of step with God. We're just ahead of God. And we're just trying to like force it along and say, God, no, no, not later, now. Six, eight months ago now, I think, I did a message. And kind of the, the image behind some of it uh, was that God's, I think, favorite kitchen appliance is not the microwave, but the crock pot. <laughs> just from like what I've observed is that a crockpot tends to take a massive amount of time, but it comes out better. 
If you don't believe me, try cooking chicken in a microwave. Let's see where that gets you, as opposed to the crock pot. And I just, and I mentioned that. And, uh, and I said, hey, it was just the timing thing we don't like. And so we forced it along. And one of the items that I mentioned was in relationships. And just like as throwing it out there. And I said, listen, I think one of the ways that we do it is we see that final destination. He's the one. She's the one. And we'll do whatever it takes to like force it along to get from here to there. God, he's the one after all. So it doesn't matter like what I do with my body and my sexuality because he's the one. She's the one. It doesn't matter like the living arrangements from now until then. He's the one. She's the one. I just like, we're aligned in the destination and it doesn't matter like how I get there, right? And it's like, no, no, no. It's not enough just to be aligned with God's endpoint. We have to do godly things God's way. And like the amount, after I shared that, of just like encouragement, honestly, of people stepping forward and saying like, this is me, this is my story. I needed to hear that. It makes it easier. And so I just thought, let's just say it one more time. God's things, God's way. That's what he's after. But for Moses, it's not done. It's not done. The story continues on. Verse 13, the next day, so Moses, he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Which is a bit ironic because Pharaoh made him ruler as a prince in Egypt and also God made him judge and deliverer later on. So they had no idea how right he was. Who made you ruler and judge over us? Okay. Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? It's out. And Moses knows It's out. It's everywhere. I think Moses has this like stunning sense of his own fatality right there in front of us. He's cooked. We we get this. We've seen this. Uh, The year 2016 in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, the Olympics, 21-year-old Wilhelm Balazia from France trains and trains and trains his whole life. He won a bronze and gold medal in the 100-meter hurdling event for the European continent. And now he's on the grand stage. He's at the Olympics. And he's heavily favored to take home some kind of hardware, right? he's He's a contender. And so he lines up on the blocks is soon just just waiting now for that gun to fire. Only he doesn't wait. Only the nerves hit him and and he takes off. A split second before he heard the gun fire. For track track and field athletes, you know this as a false start. The Olympic Committee had decided prior to that event that they were amending the rules. You would no longer get two false starts. You wouldn't get any. He was disqualified. I want you to see the look on his face when he realizes everything that he had trained for, for his whole life, was over. And we soak this up because you know this is how the world works. This is the picture of 
ungrace in the world. Your failure is fatal. It's done. Disqualified. Cooked. But Moses was only beginning to understand that God specializes in raising the dead. Amen? He was realizing that God was all the time whispering in his ear, yeah, 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 but I'm not finished with you yet. I've still got something here. That picture is how the world works. That is not how I work. It's just going to take a little longer than you think. Then Moses, continuing on, then Moses was afraid and he thought, what I did must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, hang on. Midian isn't so much like a specific nation kind of region of the world. Midian is a nomadic, wandering people group all around the same part of the world. That's, that's Midian. So he sits down here by a well, verse 16, and a priest of Midian had seven daughters. Okay, and they came... And they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. And some shepherds came along. Some shepherds come along. Okay, hang on here. Now, they got shepherds come along, and you think like, oh, that's cute and adorable. Like, you think shepherds in the Bible, and you're like, oh, yeah, like Jesus is a good shepherd, right? And he's, and he's like got this long, flowing, kind of hippie hair, if we're honest. And he's always carrying his little, little lambs, little baby, cute animals, cute, fluffy, and soft. That's Jesus. He's a shepherd. So it's great. Some shepherds coming along. Nothing better. No, false, wrong. Because the shepherds in Exodus chapter 2 that's referencing here, this is like like a gang. This is like hell's angels coming, like rolling up the motorcycle gang, right? These guys mean trouble. These guys are like the, they're the rough. They're like, they're all tatted up. And I'm not like tatted up like the little, you know, Deathly Hollows triangle tattoo with the watercolor in the background. Like, no, no, no. No, these guys are like the, the homemade needle and Bic pen prison tattoos that are like sloppy and messy. These guys, they're tough. And they mean trouble. And so Moses now, he gets another shot. How does he respond? The shepherds come along, verse 17. Some shepherds come along and drove them away. The, the women, the, the girls, the, the seven daughters. But Moses got up and came to their rescue. Now, coming to the rescue, that was never the problem, though. That was never the problem. Because, because Moses was the guy who always demonstrated courage in the face of adversity. I mean, he did it with the Egyptian. Courage was never the issue. Restraint seemed to be the issue. And we can start to see there wasn't a body to bury, so at least we're growing in that direction. And then the next line, and watered their flock. Now, I hope this doesn't get me into any trouble, but I'm just going to throw it out there. It was women's work to, to pull up water from the well. I mean, like, that's not today. I don't know who gets the water from the well in your house. Like, that's not the point. But like back then, it was the woman's job, it was those seven daughters, it was their job to go out to the well. And it was, it was difficult. It was hard work. I mean, big clay pots, they're heavy. You typically wouldn't dig a well where you live because of like bathroom proximity and drainage issues. Things. So it was like, it was a way, a ways. The wells were very deep. I mean, it was, it was hard work. And you got this, these thugs like rolling up and hassling them at best, just taking their water at worst else. And then Moses shows up and he's demonstrating, he's demonstrating courage, he's demonstrating restraint. 
He's also demonstrating compassion. He does the work so they don't have to. Now, now, for the girl's dad, he's going, okay, we don't get uh, like an eligible Egyptian bachelors wandering around in the wilderness demonstrating courage, restraint, and compassion very often. So he's like, let's get a plan together. Verse 18, when the girls returned to Reuel, also known that's a part of the tribe's name, Jethro was probably the father's name, to their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early? And the answer, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He, he even drew water for us and watered the flock. Where is he? <laughs> he asked his daughters, why do you leave him? And this guy, he knows. He knows the way to a man's heart like man to man. He gets it. Next line, invite him to have something to eat. <laughs> he gets it. Verse 21, Moses agreed to stay with the man, comma, who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. It's, that escalated quickly. <laughs> Verse 22, period, Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, if you're looking for names, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. We could stop it there. There's a sense in which the story kind of had this arc to it of failure, and God rescued him, God brought him back. And it's like, oh man, you know, happy, heavy, happily ever after. He's got his wife, Zipporah. He's got Gershom, this baby. I mean, he's, he's, he's got this family. He's got this new life. He was a person without a people, and now, and now he found his people. God wasn't finished yet. I just want to show a map of what we're looking at here. Just kind of place it. This is a Google Images satellite view. This green area on the left here, we put a circle over that. This is Egypt. It's green. It's lush. Things grow there without much hard work. Midian is wandering around in the desert. Brown dot. Nothing grows in the desert. It's harsh. Freezing temperatures at night, 100, 120 degrees in the day. I look at this and I think, did God know that there's no possible way a 40-year classroom-educated Egyptian palace boy was going to be able to lead his people through 40 years of some of the roughest terrain in the region? And did God say, Moses, you're ready to exodus. I'm not ready for you to exodus. Moses, you need to learn how to lead yourself before I put you in leadership of others. Moses, you're going to need to learn how to care for your immediate family members before I ask you to care for hundreds of thousands of other people who are going to depend on your leadership. Moses, I'm going to trust you with a little. And in turn, we will build to trusting you with much, much more. I think some of us, we like look at this setbacks and the, and the failures that are along the way. And, and on one hand, it's like, oh man, Moses, he totally screwed it up. He totally messed up. I mean, he failed fatally so. 
And everything was like gone. You know, that's it. He screwed up. And so God gave him just this little quiet life family instead. It's like, no, no. Because if you've ever thought that you can thwart God's plans, like I mean this with all humility and respect. I do not know many of your stories, but I just want to say this boldly and with some humility attached to it. And I think truth, if you think that you can thwart God's plans, you either think way too highly of yourself or way too low of God. You cannot thwart God's plans. He's too big. And listen, you're and I'm too small to be able to do that. He's got something else cooking. He's still at work. He hasn't forgotten about it. He's just saying, you're in development right now. I need you to learn some things that you wouldn't have learned otherwise. Continue on in the story. Verse, verse 23. During that long period of 40 years, this is like the mainspring of the Egyptian story, the Israelites, the Israelites groaned in their slavery, and cried out. And a cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He groaned in their slavery and cried out. He groaned. I've said this before on stage. I'm just going to keep saying it because it's super helpful as we read these Old Testament stories. There's a distinction that makes that, that needs to be made. Old Testament professor Tremper Longman III so you know you can trust him with a name like Tremper Longman III. He, he, just, he writes every time in the Old Testament when the people grumble, they grumble about God. And it tends not to go well. Every time they groan, they groan up to God. And God hears them every single time. Like this groaning, it's actually it's a prayer where they don't know the words to pray. So they just sort of like, like lay there before God and just like, ah. It's like when you're laid up with the flu or whatever and your roommate comes in and it's like, hey, how you doing? And you don't list off the symptoms that you're experiencing in that moment. You're just kind of like, ugh. And he's like, okay, dude, and shut the door. And it's like, I get it. I, I heard you. And God's like, I hear you. I hear the groans that you're lifting up before me right now. I know what is going on with you? And then this awesome line to finish it out in verse 25, it says, So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Same word as previous when Moses looks on it. It's not just observed and seeing it in a dispassioned, cold, icy, distant sort of way. Literally, he, was he looks on it with emotion. He was deeply, God was deeply moved by their groaning. He heard it. And we know from the rest of the story, God also resolved to do something about it. He put his man in training, 40 years of training to do something about it. I hear you. And I'm working. And for us, there's a waiting period attached to that. Like, just think about that for a second. That Moses spent 40 years in the formal education classroom setting of Egypt and 40 more years of the playground education on the hard streets wandering around with the Midianites, all in preparation of leading God's people in that wilderness for 40 years. And like there's a real world application in there to say that if you knew that God was going to put you in training for two years 
of training for every one year of ministry would just still hang and come along. If it was like a two to one ratio, like it was for Moses, 80 years goes by. Some of us, we can't last like a week and a half because it's like, God, I told you I'm here. I'm ready. Put me in, coach. And he's like, not quite yet. It's going to take a little longer than that. It might even take twice as long in training than what the ministry actually provides to still hang. Okay, stepping back from all this, I think there's like, you think we're falling into one of three categories. Some of us come at this story and we can see like, you're guilty maybe, uh, where do you fit in the story? This is where I fit in the story. Constantly trying to run ahead of God and just wondering, why isn't God like keeping up behind me? Like, like, come on, come on. This is the final destination. Like, try to keep up here, would you? And like the reminder from the Moses story is God speaking into your life now and he's going, listen, it's not enough just to do God's things. You have to do God's things God's way. I think somebody else, you're listening into this story and there's an element of this where you're going, why, why am I working? Why am I pushing? And there's like this seeming lack of apparent action on God's part. He's just like, He's just, he's just sitting there. And you need to know, like Moses, 40 years, then 40 years, some of God's best work happens not in the foreground, but in the background. It's like number two, if you're, if you're at here going, where is God? I don't see the action. God, where are you? Some of God's best work happens not in the foreground, in the limelight, in the background, offstage. He's developing you. And lastly, you're groaning. The third one is that like there's this oppression or this weightiness, this heft that is sitting on you and you don't even have words to articulate it other than just that oh, groan. It's, it's wrong. It's off, God. And he's telling you, I hear you. I'm moved by you. Groaning up to me. I'm at work. I'm coming for you. He came for you. Just remember that. He came for you. He came for you once, and he's coming again. We like look at this story and say, Moses, you failed so hard, so badly, you can't come back from that. And God says, not, not so with me. I have a second chance for you. I have a third. I have a fourth. I'm coming for you. I came for you once. You think that you failed. Beyond what life can stand, it's fatal. God says to you today, I specialize in raising the dead. I did it once. I'll do it again. I invite you to stand up, church. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we, um, God, some of us, we need to come here right now and we need to confess to you a sense of pride that we think that we've failed so badly that we've thwarted your plans. God, forgive our small-mindedness about what you're up to. God, forgive us of our big-headedness of what we think that we're up to. God, show us what's going on behind the scenes, that, that it's you, that you're at work, that some of the best work that you do happens just off stage, happens in the background. God, and many of us, we live our lives in the background. But you're at work. <laughs> and God, if we're groaning, these audible, 
wordless kind of groans. You hear us and you're moved by it. You're coming for us, Christ. You're coming for us. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.